want to invite you to turn back to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. In this magnificent passage about the potency and the power of God's word. By the way, I might mention this, that uh, I was thinking that uh, in light of what we just meditated on in Isaiah chapter 1, um, if we, we know what God doesn't want because of what we read there, but we have to ask ourselves, what does he want? And David found that to be true. What was it? Psalm 51. He said, you don't desire sacrifice. I know that's not what you want right now. What did he want? A broken and contrite heart. That's what the Lord's look, looking for. And uh, I trust that uh, as we have spent that time in communion together, that that's what the Lord saw in you. As he looked down onto your heart, he saw a broken and contrite heart. Yeah, you may have sinned this week. You may have sinned miserably this week. But you know what? He sees your brokenness. He sees your contrite about it. And that's what God looks for. And those are the kind of people that he loves to forgive and loves to restore and loves to prop back up again, dust them off, and head them back out for another week of seeking to please the Lord. So anyway, I just wanted to encourage you with that. Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Father, we come before you with a broken and contrite heart. Because when we know that whenever we come before your word, that we're laid open and bare before your eyes. And that you see into the deepest, darkest corners of our heart and our lives. You know everything about us. And therefore, you can use your word to penetrate to the depths of our soul, to those areas that we may have covered up or are trying to hide. We know that your word can even penetrate to those deep recesses, Father, of our lives. And so we ask this morning that you would demonstrate your power through your spirit and your word as the word goes forth in these next few moments that you as the divine surgeon would take your scalpel, this very text, and pierce our hearts and do a transforming work in our souls, to help us be the people you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we, as we begin this morning, I want to invite you back to Psalm 95. Because if you remember from last week, our passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, was given in the context of the writer quoting Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a powerful psalm of praise to the Lord, calling God calling His people to, to praise Him. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. For He is a great God, a great King. Verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. There's a beautiful, beautiful imagery there of, of God's people, God's sheep, if you will, coming before Him and giving Him the honor and the praise that's due Him. But then the psalm takes a dramatic turn. And there's a transitional phrase here at the end of verse 7. He says, today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 
That really is the, the essence of this psalm. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had, not seen, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart. And they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they will not enter into my rest. Again, the psalm starts very positive and then ends very negative. And the hinge on which this psalm turns is that phrase, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, oh, that you would hear the voice of God, and not harden your heart to what He's saying to you. I think this is one of the most frightening concepts in the whole Bible. This hardening of heart. To harden your heart means to hear the truth of God's Word over and over and over again, and yet refuse to listen to it and respond. God convicts you about something in your life, but you ignore it. And time and time again, he, he, he comes back and He reminds you and He convicts you and you ignore it and you don't do anything about it. And eventually, your heart becomes insensitive to God's voice. Your heart becomes hard. It becomes calloused. And we understand what a callous is like, that there's a constant rubbing and a constant rubbing and a constant rubbing. And, and finally, the layers of dead skin build up on layer of dead skin to the point that you can't even feel anything anymore, can you? I mean, you, could, you got a big old callus on your foot and you could take a needle, a sharpest needle in your house and you stick it right in there and you can't feel it, can you? We see example after example after example in the Bible of those who harden their heart. Probably the most well-known is who? Those of you that are doing a read through the Bible have just probably got done reading the first part of Exodus, right? Where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God's word through Moses. And over and over and over again, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Even though he, God did this amazing thing and, this, this, and punished him with this amazing, um, uh, what do you call those things? Plagues, yeah. Just want to see if you're listening, okay? Did these plagues, and it just took, the, took his legs out from under him. And then he said, okay, okay, you guys can go. And then he says what? He hardened his heart. He said, no, you can't go. It took him 10 times. To get it through his head, okay, I can't win. I'm up against the God of the universe here. I give. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Not a few days later, after being rescued and delivered from Egypt, the very people that had been delivered by the great hand of God began to do the very same thing. They hardened their heart against God's word through Moses. They were doing the same thing that Pharaoh was. And we, we learned in Psalm 95, it was at Meribah and Massa. And this is where they complained about not having enough water to drink. And they were saying, well, did God bring us out here just so we could die of thirst out in the wilderness? We, had, we were much better off back in Egypt. Oh, really? They hardened their hearts. Mark chapter 3, verse 5, talks about the Pharisees, how they had hardened their hearts against the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ. And they were watching Jesus in the temple on the Sabbath to see whether or not He would heal the man's who had a withered hand. And it says that Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, we see how the Jews have hardened their hearts against Jesus Christ as their Messiah. In Ephesians chapter 4, we learned when we studied through this great book that unbelievers harden their hearts against the Word of God. In chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, it says this, that, that we would walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their ignorance, excuse me, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So you've got Pharaoh, you've got the Israelites, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Jews, you've got unbelievers. And guess who else is included in the descriptions of those who sometimes harden their hearts against the Word of God? You and me as Christians, as believers. And we find that here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. 
after quoting Psalm 95, the writer says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. What was the point? Today, if you hear his voice, what? Don't harden your house. He says, hey, while it's still called today, encourage one another, lest any one of you be what? Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it's possible that Christians' hearts can be hardened to God's word by the deceitfulness of sin. The book of Hebrews was, was addressed to, to Jews who were wavering in their faith in Jesus Christ and they'd been exposed to the gospel and some had even embraced the gospel but were being tempted to fall back into their old religious system of Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews is exhorting them and encouraging them to not allow their hearts to become hardened toward God and His Word. And so he warns them against this danger of falling away from God. He goes back to the example of their ancestors in Psalm 95 where they failed, the Israelites failed to enter the promised land because they rebelled against the Lord. They disobeyed His Word. And as a result of their hard hearts, what did they have to do for 40 years? They wandered around the wilderness and then died. And in chapter 4, verse 11, He says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest, our spiritual rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. So He's seeking to motivate them by reminding them of what happens when you disregard and you disobey God's word. And then he goes on in verses 12 to 13 here to give some compelling reasons why we must never blow off God's word. Why we should never harden our hearts to the word of God. If we hear the voice of God through his word, that we would never blow it off. We'd never harden our hearts towards it. And he gives two reasons. And I think these are the same two reasons that should compel us to heed God's word, to listen to what it says and and do what it says because all of us, according to the, the previous chapter, are prone at times to blow off God's word and what he said to us. Has anybody ever done that deliberately, blown off God's word? You liars. Leave me up here hanging again. Thank you. Got a few people that are willing to admit that. And that's in essence what we do. Every time we sin, we blow off God's word. We allow the deceitfulness of sin to harden our hearts against God's word. I was having a discussion with someone recently, and we were talking about uh, the difference between um, premeditated sin, deliberate sin, and, and sins that you just do and you didn't realize were sin. And, and we were talking about it, and, and, and he was surprised that, that I commit deliberate acts of sin. And I said, well, (laughs) you're obviously a lot farther down the sanctification path than I am because uh, there's times when I'm standing there, as it were, at a crossroads, and and sin is calling my name and wants me to go this way, and God is saying, go this way, and I know clearly God's word says to go this way, and my flesh is wanting to go this way, and I'm sitting there trying to make a decision what to do. And and I know if if I allow, if I stand there long enough, you know what typically wins? My flesh. We've got to learn to make a quick decision. Boom. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? What, what did Satan say to Eve? Has God said, questioned, got her to question God's word? And long you stand in your flesh and the world and Satan, they get you to question God's word. And, and there's a hardening effect that takes place. And you, you, you deliberately and willfully say, you know, even though I know the Bible says I shouldn't do that, I'm going to do it anyway. Now, with that definition, has anybody ever done that, or is that just me? Okay? I mean, there are some things that you're just going along, and there is, it isn't that deliberate and that conscious that you actually, but there's times when you do have time, and it's kind of like the world stops, and everything's in slow motion, right? And you're able to consciously think about this. It's not one of those deals where it just comes flying out, and you say, oh, honey, I should have said that. Please forgive me. That's, that's one thing. But there's other times where it's premeditated, deliberate, and I think that's what it's talking about here, that we need to, that's why we need to encourage one another because sin is so deceptive. It makes itself look so good and so appealing that we're willing to forsake God's word to get a taste of it. 
And so these two reasons here that he gives in verses 12 and 13 should compel us to obey God's word. You say, what are they? Well, number one, it's because of what it is. It's, it's the living word. And number two, it's whose it is. It's the living Lord's. Last week we looked at that first reason why not to blow off God's word, and that's what it is, the living word. It's, it's likened, and I likened it to a divine scalpel in verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think that was intended by the writer of Hebrews to be a scary picture. That wasn't, oh, look at that cute little, cute little sword. It was, look at that sword, this blazing double-edged sword that's incredibly powerful. In other words, that was an instrument of judgment to, to, to realize, man, this is not something to mess with. When we hear God's word, we don't mess with it. The Word of God there is talking about the written Word, the Holy Scriptures, whether that's read or meditated on or, or, or spoken. And we said that this verse says three things about God's Word. Number one, it's dynamic. This is just review, by the way. Uh, it says it's living, which describes the dynamic quality of the Word. It gives life. It, it regenerates our souls. It sustains our life. It sanctifies our souls. In other words, God's Word makes us alive and keeps us alive. And we can, we can literally say it is our very life. That's what Moses said to the people when he delivered them the law the second time in Deuteronomy 32, 47. He said, this is not just idle words. This is your life. There's a reason why Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? You think you're doing all right living, right? By eating food. And that's enough to sustain your life. Well, you think so, but you're really wasting away. Because it's only the word of God. Man shall not live by bread, food alone. We need spiritual food. We need fuel for life. That's what John Piper calls quiet time. He calls it, it's your, it's your fuel for life. It's like you go into the gas station and you stick your nozzle in, you know, take it out and you put it in your car, right? It, it's your fuel for life. That's your quiet time. You take it off and boom, shh. Some mornings, every morning you got to pump in super unleaded, man. You need that in there. It's fuel for life. So the Word of God is dynamic. It's active. It's living. It's active. That's the word for energy. It's, it, it's always working, produces changing, changes in our lives. It's convicting us and confronting us and correcting us and comforting us and conforming us to the image of Christ. So it's dynamic. Number two, it's dissecting. It's a two-edged sword. That's the Greek word makaira. Remember, that's that little short sword kind of the, the 9 to 16 inches, just a little guy, the sharpest sword in a, in a soldier's arsenal. And it says it's able to lay us wide open and expose the sin in our lives as far as the division of soul and spirit. In other words, it's able to divide the undividable. And I think the point there is that the soul and the spirit are so closely interwoven in the spiritual, it's the same as the joints and the marrow and the physical. But it's God's word, the scalpel, is able to get in there and make a separation between bone and marrow and between soul and spirit. So it's dynamic, it's dissecting. And then thirdly, we said it's discerning. It's discerning. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that word kritikos, where we get the word critic. In other words, it's able to discern. The word's able to discern what's really going on in our hearts and our minds, even when we can't figure it out. The Word has the ability to sort out all the tangled web of sinful thoughts and desires and feelings and emotions and motives that go on in our heart at any given time. And ultimately, only God understands what's going on in our hearts. And therefore, it's only His Word that can sort it all out. And so He helps us through His Word to see things the way they really are. And He exposes, as I prayed earlier, the deepest, darkest secrets of our hearts. And there's no part of our lives that doesn't come under the influence of the searchlight of God's Word. It's just like a, you think of a picture of a searchlight just kind of going through our heart, you know, and sins are popping up, ducking their head down, popping up, ducking their head down, little gophers all over the place, right? And the searchlight's going through there trying to sort them all out. 
And so God's word is the power to penetrate to the very core of our being and ultimately to change us. Aren't you thankful for that? That we don't have to stay the same? That's enough to get you out of the bed in the morning. To know that you can change because of God's word. I told you that I had a chance to go back to, to California to the Master's Seminary and take this class, this winterum class, just a few, well, a month ago now. And uh, Kent Hughes was uh, the professor who taught on 2 Corinthians. And uh, the reason why I went is because he's one of my favorite commentators. He's a fabulous expositor of God's Word, just working through verse by verse through Scripture, which he's done for over 20 years now at, uh, at uh, College Church in Wheaton. And the fruit of that is his commentaries. Um, He's got commentaries in a lot of books of the Bible that he's been through. And uh, he says this in his commentary on this passage. He quotes Luther. He's talking about the power of the Word of God. Um, he, he says, The power of the Word began the Reformation. As Luther said, this, this is Luther's quote. He said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and my Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. That was Luther's commentary on the Reformation that everyone said, well, Luther started the Reformation. He said, I didn't do anything. I just preached and I wrote the word of God. I went out and had beer with my buddies. And while I was out there talking with my buddies, the word of God did its work in the papacy, bringing the papacy down. And then Hughes goes on to say, God's word is effectual, it's living, it's active. It does what it promises to do. It regards neither age nor education. It can change you if you are 12 or 102. This is why I take seriously every child who sits under God's word. If you will listen to God's word, it will change your life. Amen? That's why we need to listen to the Word of God and heed the Word of God because it will change our lives. It's the living Word. But that's not all. We have another verse here that's tacked on. Verse 13. And I've called this the living Lord. We have the living Word in verse, thir uh, verse 12. And now we see the living Lord. We see the divine scalpel in verse 12, and now we see the divine surgeon. And these verses are connected. There's an and there at the beginning of verse 13, and connects this verse with the one before it. In other words, these verses go together. They're a package deal. You can't have one without the other. They're inseparably linked. You say, why do you make that point? Because the point is this, God and His Word are inseparably linked. You can't separate a book from its author. And the Word is the way it is because of whose it is. It is God's Word. It's not just the Word. It's God's Word. I thought Pink explained this transition best. He said this, quote, The first word and denotes that a reason is being given for the power and efficacy of the Word. In other words, this is a reason for a reason. The reason why we shouldn't blow off God's word is because it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of the soul of the spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, it's not something to mess with. It's a blazing, sharp sword. Why is it that? Okay, so here's a reason for a reason. He says, the reason is drawn from the nature of him whose word it is, namely God who being himself the searcher and discerner of all things, is pleased to exercise that power in and by the ministry and application of his word. In other words, the power of God flows through his word. That's his chosen instrument for change, is the word of God. God's character is inherent in his word. I want you to turn to Psalm 138. Verse 2. And this is the verse I want to encourage you to underline in your Bible. It's a fascinating verse. It's, it's really a shocking verse. But it proves what I'm about to say. Psalm 138, verse 2. 
David writes, I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. Now watch this. For thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name. Literally, together with your name. And I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. You know what that verse is saying? That God has exalted his word to the same level of his name. And when, when you talk about God's name, what are you talking about? Who he is. Everything that we know about God, all of his attributes, all of his character, are wrapped up in that term, the name. And so what he's saying is he has exalted his word. He has magnified his word to the same level as him. So we talk about, as a Bible church, not wanting to commit bibliolatry, which sometimes, you know, worshiping and bowing down to the Bible. Well, I'm not telling you to do that, obviously. But listen, we've got a long way to go to commit that sin, if that's true. Okay? Because he says, God said, I didn't exalt, Lakeside Bible Church didn't exalt his word to, to, to God. God did. God exalted his word at the same level as his name. And that shows how powerful that it's almost like his word, God and his word are synonymous. And God's omnipotence and his omniscience and every other attribute flow through his word. And so what makes the Bible so dynamic and gives it the ability to discern our hearts and dissect our hearts with such precision and, and so accurately discern every aspect of what's going on in our hearts because it is the word of the all-powerful, all-knowing God. And so whenever we're exposed to the Word of God, we're in essence being exposed to God Himself. When we look into the Word, we're looking into the very face of God. You're like, whoo, I'm shutting my Bible. <laughs> but but that's, I believe that's what's happening. That whenever we open our Bibles, we come face to face with God. That was the part I was all excited about last week. I couldn't wait to get to. Because I'd never seen that connection between verses 12 and 13 before. Look at back at 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is giving instruction to the church in Corinth that were, they were abusing spiritual gifts and they were overemphasizing the gift of tongues and, and all the signs and wonder kind of gifts and, and it was, became more of a big old show and who was going to speak in tongues this week and who was going to say what and, and it was just a really chaos and it was very disorderly in the worship. And so Paul was writing to correct them and he's, and he's downplaying tongues. And he's saying, hey, you know what? If you have a choice between speaking in tongues and prophesying, and, and what he, when he talked about prophesying, what was he talking about? He was talking about proclaiming the truth of God's word, preaching. He says in verse 24, um, well, verse 23, if therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? In other words, if we all got together this morning and everybody, all we did was just speak in tongues all morning. An unbeliever would walk in here and go, these people are psycho. I mean, they're, they're freaks. What, what's the deal? Right? He says, but if all prophesy, in other words, you proclaim the word of God and an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, what's going to happen? He's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. You remember what I said? When you, when you open the Word of God, when you're exposed to the Word of God, you are standing face to face with who? With God. And your secret sins, as it were, are exposed, and you fall on your face and you worship God as a response to prophetic preaching. Back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, let's unpack this verse a little bit. We just kind of covered that first word, and. <laughs> let's go on. And there is no creature, by the way, that's talking about you in there, and me. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
Let's look at the, that little phrase, open and laid bare. Two words there, open literally means naked. So we find ourselves standing before God with our sin uncovered and exposed. And there's no way to cover it up. And there's no place to hide. Give me a towel. No, it's not, you can't. It's, you're standing there before the Lord. And it reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember what happened? It says they ate of the fruit and they, their eyes were open and they realized they were what? Naked. And what was the first thing they did? They went and go made little, sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And then what else did they do? They hid. And God started, God came to the garden and said, hey guys, where are you? And it wasn't like he was walking through, where are you? As if God didn't know where they were. In other words, where are you? I haven't gone anywhere. Where are you guys? And then immediately they start to, to shift the blame, right? Well, it was the woman that you gave me and it was the serpent. And what's the point? Ever since the very beginning, we have tried as humans, sinful creatures, to cover our sin, haven't we? And there's symbolism there with the fig leaves and hiding in the, in the garden. When we sin, we want to cover it up. So no one sees it and we want to go hide so nobody can find out, right? And yet, it says when we come before God's word, there's no place to hide. There's nothing we can do to hide. You, you can sew as many fig leaves together as you want. You're standing there naked, exposed before God. You thought that word was good. Look at this next word. Things are open. It says, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's the Greek word trachelos, which sounds like our English word what? Trachea or throat. And it's a really unusual word that's only used here in the New Testament, but it's, it's been associated with a couple different things. Um, in ancient times, wrestlers had a certain hold that involved seizing the opponent's neck to render him powerless, kind of like a chokehold. That was how that word was used. It was also associated with the sacrificial system when the priest would pull back the head of an animal to expose the throat before he would slit his throat with his knife. He would be laid bare. It was also used to refer to a criminal who was brought before a judge for sentencing. And as he was brought before that judge, the guard would pull his head back and put a knife under his chin so that he couldn't turn away and, and look down but he was forced to keep his head up and look into the face of that judge. I think the idea here is that God seizes us and he lays hold of us with the double-edged sword of his word and he holds it against our throats, if you will, and he forces us to look at him who's our eternal judge. And the power of God's word renders us completely helpless and we're forced to stand face to face with God. And there's nothing we can do to, to avert his, his view and his discerning look. We can't turn away and look down. We're forced to look at him like that. He says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, that's what's called an anthropomorphism, a fancy seminary term for when you ascribe to God human body parts. We know that God is what? A spirit, does he have eyes? Literal eyes? No, he doesn't have literal eyes. But that's, it's almost as, as God speaking down to us so that we could relate and understand him better by giving us uh, him, him human attributes. But nonetheless, throughout his word, he describes his eyes. And I want you to look at some verses with me because this is a very, I think, one of the most terrifying aspects of God that he has revealed about himself in his word. 2 Chronicles 16.9. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So again, talking about his omniscience, that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. In other words, he knows what's in our heart. He can see that. Job 34, 21. 
Job 34, 21. It says, For his eyes are upon the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. In other words, God sees everything we do and everywhere we go. Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Verses 13, 14, and 15. The Lord looks from heaven and sees all the sons of men. There he is, if you will, sitting on his throne, and he's looking out and he sees all of us. Every single person alive on the planet today, he sees all six plus billion of us. That's a lot of people to keep track of, by the way. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Again, there's six billion plus, right? He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. And not, not only does he just see us, everyone on the planet, he understands and, 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 and knows everything about each one of us. Look at Psalm 90, verse 8. Psalm 90, verse 8. This is Moses. He says, Thou hast placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of thy presence. In other words, every time we sin, it's as if we sin in the very throne room of God. Right in front of His throne. That's what he's saying, that our secret sins are in the light of His presence. Proverbs 15.3. This is what happens when I have another week to meditate on a passage. I go find other verses that back up what it's saying. Proverbs 15.3. This is a good one. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So it's not just a negative thing, it's a positive thing. In other words, there, there's no place you can go where God doesn't see you. He's not watching We, we, there's a question that we do with our kids in our little catechism time. Sometimes we use this for our family worship. And like we were just teaching Jacob this one because uh, he, he's playing catch-up because he's the youngest. You know, and the other older kids have already learned some of these. But the question is, can you see God? That's the question in the catechism, Westminster Catechism. Can you see God? And the answer is no, but he can always see me. Isn't that a great thing for a little kid to learn? That's a good thing for a big kid to learn, Right? <laughs> That even though we can't see God, because that's Jacob's big gripe. He says, Daddy, I can't see him. Why do you keep talking about God? I can't see him. Well, now he's getting to the point and said, okay, you, I can't see him, but he can always see me. That's a good thing. And then lastly, Jeremiah 16, 17. Jeremiah 16, 17. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is there iniquity concealed from my eyes. Hopefully those verses fill in the detail when it says that all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The Bible says a lot about God's eyes. I want to read for you a section out of J.C. Rowell's book, Thoughts for Young Men. And if there was one thing I would correct about this book, I would have just called it Thoughts for Everyone. <laughs> for, you know, young men, that's great. And it does apply specifically to young men, but it's really Thoughts for Everyone. But he, really, the, the point of this book is he goes through and gives special counsel to young men, um, which is very universal. And he goes through and tells them certain rules to live their lives by. Remember this and remember this and make sure you do this and don't do this. And he gets to one here, and this is number three, special rules for young men. He says, another thing, resolve never to forget the eye of God. And then he goes on. The eye of God. Think of that. Everywhere. In every house. In every field. In every room. In every company. Alone or in a crowd. The eye of God is always upon you. Endeavor, I beseech you, to realize this fact. Remember that you have to deal with an all-seeing God. A God who never slumbers nor sleeps. 
I got to understand your thoughts afar off and with whom the night shines as a day. You may deceive your parents or employers. You may tell them falsehoods and be the one thing and be one thing before their faces and another thing behind their backs, but you cannot deceive God. He knows you through and through. He heard what you said as you spoke to people today. He knows what you're thinking of at this minute. He has set your most secret sins in the light of his countenance, and they will one day come out before the world to your shame unless you take heed. He says, how little is this really felt? How many things are done continually which men would never do if they thought they were seen? What's the first thing you do when you're about to do something wrong? <laughs> right? You think, okay, I want to make sure nobody's going to around so nobody's going to see this. Well, that is so heinous in light of the omniscience and omnipresence of God. He says, how many matters are transacted in the chambers of imagination which would never bear the light of day? Yes, men entertain thoughts in private and say words in private and do acts in private which they would be ashamed and blush to have exposed before the world. The sound of a footstep coming has stopped many a deed of wickedness. A knock at the door has caused many an evil work to be hastily suspended and hurriedly laid aside. He says, but oh, what miserable driveling folly is laid is all this. There is an all-seeing witness with us wherever we go. Lock the door, draw down the blinds, close the shutters, put out the light. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. God is everywhere. You cannot shut him out or prevent his seeing. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13. That guy understood that verse, didn't he? Practically applied it to our lives. So God sees everything we do. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hid from him. He knows what we do, when we do it, where we do it, and why we do it. And someday, we're going to have to stand before him and give an account for everything we did and didn't do. And that's really the essence of this last phrase. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, as the NIV says, with whom we must give account. And the point is that someday, every one of us is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God and settle up the account of our life with Him. Romans 14, verse 10. One of the verses about the judgment seat. Romans 14, verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And you know what's going to be the standard by which we're judged? Guess. The sword of the Spirit. It's going to be the solemn instrument of God's judgment. And just like a human judge bases his rulings on the standard of the laws of the government that they have laid down, so God will make his rulings based on the standard of his laws that he has laid down. And so his word will be the standard by which he judges us. And I don't know of any passage that says it's clearer than Jesus himself in John chapter 12. Listen to what he says. It's John chapter 12, verse 47. He says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me, however, does not and does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. And who is that? The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. In other words, all the times that you heard the word of God, if you're an unbeliever, all the times you heard the word of God proclaimed to you and you continue to reject that and harden your heart towards the gospel and towards your need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that's going to be what God judges you based on. 
And for us as believers who know the word of God and we continue to persist in sin in particular areas that we know are disobedient to the word of God, he's going to say, you hardened your heart against that. You knew that was wrong and yet you continue to do that. Why? And so each of us will have to submit our lives to the scrutiny of God's word. We'll be examined and judged based on whether or not our lives lined up with God's word. Or we could even go one step further and say, or how closely they lined up with God's word. Maybe you're in. You know, maybe you're a Christian. You're like, hey, great, that's fine. I'm, I'm in. But I think he's going he's gonna to see how closely our lives lined up with God's word. I think what Solomon said at the end of Ecclesiastes is a good reminder for us. When all is said and done, the conclusion of his life pursuit to find hope and purpose and meaning in life, he came to this conclusion. This is Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He says the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And that's why when we hear God's word and we hear his voice speaking to us through his word, we, we must not harden our hearts. We must not blow it off. We have to listen attentively to it and, and wholeheartedly obey it. Why? Because there's going to be a test someday. Can I say it that way? You're sitting in class and maybe you're just kind of whatever, you know, teacher saying this stuff. Hearing it's kind of going in one ear out the other or just kind of being written in a notebook. Some people do that even in church, right? They're, they're kind of, the, 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 they audit the church. They audit church, you know? They just kind of come, they get the information, but they never have to apply it. They never have to do any of the assignments. What he's saying is, hey, there's going to be a test someday. We're going to have to give an account for what we've heard and what we've learned. I think Calvin did a, did a, a wonderful job of summarizing what the writer of Hebrews was trying to get across here. This is John Calvin. He said this, quote, If anyone thinks that the air echoes with an empty sound when the word of God is sent forth, he's making a great mistake. This was something alive and full of hidden power which leaves nothing in man untouched. The sum of all this is that as soon as God opened his sacred mouth, all of our senses ought to be open to receive his word because it's not his will to scatter his words in vain, either to fade away or to fall neglected to the ground, but effectively to challenge the consciences of men so as to bring them under his rule. He has therefore endued his word with his power to search out every part of the soul, to scrutinize the thoughts, to decide between the affections, and indeed to show itself as the judge. He nailed that passage, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> you know, every time we read the word or we hear the word preached, it's like we're going under the knife. And you know what that means, right? Those of you that have actually been under the knife, gone into for some kind of surgery. But the divine surgeon uses the scalpel of his word to perform surgery on our souls and to cut the cancer of sin out of our lives. And we shouldn't argue with the surgeon or tell him where to cut or how deep to cut or what to leave in and what to take out. That'd be foolish if we were to sit there and lay on the hospital bed and, oh, doctor, before you do, I need to give you a little advice here, a little coaching here on how to do the surgery. No, we just absolutely submit to his expertise, don't we? We need to trust God that he knows what he's doing. He knows. He's got that. There's no one else in the world that we want to have that scalpel of his word in his hand than God. And let's face it, surgery is a scary thing, isn't it? I don't care how much you trust God. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. Surgery is a scary thing, especially spiritual surgery. And it should be. Because it's a fearful thing to come under the piercing ministry of God's word. And whenever his word is set before us in our reading, in our quiet times, or in our preaching, we should tremble knowing that nothing is hid from his eyes. And again, I don't want you to leave here with a, this negative impression that God is this fearful and he's looking down and 
just turn to Isaiah 66 too, as we close. This is the last chapter of our small group study right now. Kind of give you some hope, those of you that are already defeated because there's so many chapters. We're going to get here. It's worth the study if you're going to get something like this at the end. Because God saved the great nugget at the end. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. He says, for my hand made all these things. Talking about heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now this is it right here, watch this. But to this one I will look. Yeah, I know about the looking thing. It's already freaked me out. You're looking at me everywhere I go. Your look is always on me. I can't get away from your look. I can't avoid your look. But look at this. This is, this is the look that we should desire. This is the look that we should long for the most because it's a look of blessing. He says, but to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Isn't that beautiful? So all this trembling before God's word is a good thing. It's a positive thing because when God sees us respecting his word and honoring his word because of what it is and because of whose it is, that's the one that God looks with grace and mercy to those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at his word. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would teach us what it means to tremble before you and your word. And just not out of servile fear, out of threat of judgment, but those, so that we could also experience that look of grace and mercy and forgiveness that you offer to those who are broken and contrite. That even though our sins might be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Lord, thank you for entrusting your word to us as a church and as Christians, as individuals, Lord. Help us to, to honor your word, realizing that you have exalted it to the same level as your name. And so therefore, we, should, we can never have a high enough view of your word and that we would honor you and honor your word in our lives. By the way, we listen to you speak to us every time we open up this book. Every time we hear it preached, Father, or counseled that we would receive it for what it really is, not the word of man, but the word of God. And that it would perform its work in us. And Lord, I pray for anyone who might be with us this morning who has hardened their heart for weeks and months and maybe years from the gospel message that they need to turn away from their sin and trust Christ and commit their life to follow and obey him, that this morning the hammer of your word would shatter their rock-hard heart and would grant them repentance and faith. They would come to know the joy of being broken and contrite before you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.